Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics podcast. Today, I'm on with Justin Huang. Justin, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me, Alex. Yeah, my name is Justin Huang. I am an assistant professor of marketing at University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. I've been there for five years uh, now. Before that, I did my PhD over at Stanford Graduate School of Business's uh, Quantitative Marketing Program. And broadly, my research looks at the design of online platforms, online environments, e-commerce, and some of the downstream implications of that, both for uh, creators and our consumption of information and, of course, broader society. So really appreciate, again, uh, you having me on, Alex. Thank you, Justin. So you you touched on content just then. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the first topic I want to dive into. Can you tell us about the research and teaching you do around how content can control content moderation and maybe content management, how that controls Mm -hmm. the content that's actually created? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I've got um, one really interesting research project that is in its middle stages right now. So uh, it hasn't been published yet, but we're uh, gathering the data. We're running a lot of really interesting analyses, actually, just as we speak. My co-authors are working on that. Um, But yeah, this question looks at Uh, how the content on the internet is being moderated. And for a lot of people that are maybe a little bit less familiar with the space, they might say, oh, well, there are a lot of automated systems. A lot of content automation or content moderation is just coming in through natural language processors. And while there's definitely is that layer, the challenge with content moderation is that a lot of it is contextual. A lot of it, uh, for example, like misinformation or disinformation detection is uh, highly contextual, requires individual review to know whether or not this is safe content, misinformation content, and appropriate for these platforms. And of course, the platforms themselves, they'll they'll tend to vary in terms of what they define as harmful, non-harmful, what they tend to remove versus not remove. Um, And recently, this came to the forefront. Uh, I think a lot of people hadn't thought a lot about content moderation until Elon Musk had acquired Twitter. And Elon Musk, as part of his acquisition, had dialed back a lot of those content moderation restrictions, had uh, laid off or fired uh, a lot of the content moderation teams. So now a lot of people are thinking a lot about, well, you know, what exactly controls what information is out there online? Um, uh, I think another very important question is being raised. Well, you know, how could political bias, how could a, a bunch of forms of bias seep into those moderation decisions that are being made by individuals? Um, you know, maybe not necessarily like you and me, but you have large, large numbers of individuals that are being hired um, for by these teams, by these trust and safety teams at social uh, at social networks, and they're making these very regular decisions around, you know, is this content appropriate versus not? And of course, you know, for a lot of it, it's a pretty clear cut line, but sometimes there is uh, ambiguous decision making. And then, what do content moderators do in those uh, those cases? Um, so we wanted to study this. Um, we don't. In our particular study, we don't have access to Twitter's content moderators, but there are other environments in which content moderation is going on and does have a lot of control uh, over what information is being seen. And I'll give a few examples. Um, If you interact with a Facebook group, the owner then of that Facebook group has the ability to ban individuals from the Facebook group. They have the ability to take out down posts within that Facebook group. That is a form of content moderation. If you participate in a Discord server, the owner, of course, of that Discord server, they can ban individuals, they can remove content. If you comment on a YouTube video, and let's say that there is an influencer online and that influencer is making, let's say, misleading product claims, right? They're selling the next new product. It's a protein powder. And this influencer says, you eat this protein powder and you're going to gain five pounds of muscle in five weeks. And you, and the, as the commenter says, well, that's unrealistic. You know, people don't don't gain muscle that quickly. Um, I don't see how this powder is going to, to help me with it. How is it different from all the other pow- powders? Well, the owner of that YouTube video can select your comment within the, the UI and say, oh, well, I'm going to delete this comment. It's removed. Um, same thing with Instagram posts and same thing with uh, TikTok videos. The owners of this content have the ability to moderate that content. So we wanted to see, you know, in one of these environments, how does political bias potentially seep into this process? How could it potentially create an echo chamber whereby even the mechanical removal, like if there are two sides of this situation, the mechanical removal of, you know, the uh, one side of the discussion leads to only one side, the other side being represented. Um, so this brings us to the specific study. It looks at Reddit communities. Reddit communities are great because the data is publicly readily available. It's there. It's on the Reddit pages. 
um, the moderator profiles are also visible. And furthermore, we're able to back out what content was removed by looking at uh, the push shift archives and differencing what is currently visible on the site versus what was archived, what was there in the past. And therefore we can see what uh, what's disappeared. And in short, just to, you know, because this uh, story is going on a little bit, what we find is that there is strong evidence of politically biased content removal. We uh, look at uh, about 100, a little bit over 100 uh, city as well as state-based subreddits. So a lot of the kind of local subreddits that individuals might participate in. And what we find is that if we capture the political orientation of the moderators through the content that they post, through the communities that they participate in, we have a, a natural language uh, machine learning type classifier in order to infer this. We compare that political orientation with the political orientation of the comments based on the text as well as the co-participation of the uh, individual that made the comment. Well, that content is roughly 10% more likely to be removed if those two are adverse. If one is left and the other is right versus the other is right and the other, uh, the other is left. Um, so I thought it was a really fascinating finding. Uh, the other thing that we look at is the diversity of the moderator teams. We find, perhaps somewhat unsurprisingly, that more diverse moderator teams engage in less politically biased content removals. And I think this has a lot of implications for the teams and the organizations that uh, say such, uh, trust and safety over at Twitter or trust and safety over at Facebook might look to form. And that it's good to have a di diversity of thought because that diversity of thought leads to more checks on the process, leads to less politically biased content removals, and of course can encourage healthier discussion on these sites. How do you measure if something is politically biased? Yeah, definitely. So we are uh, doing this through a uh, regression analysis, and the regression analysis looks to capture the, the notion that we want to make kind of an apples to apples comparison. We want two sets of comments or broad, broadly you know, sets of comments whereby they're the same across a wide variety of other characteristics. That includes the score of the comment, how long it was there, uh, some features that are related to the, con the textual content of the comment too. So for example, uh, whether or not the content would be considered positive versus negative, whether or not that content would be considered toxic or non toxic. And all these are coming in through machine learning based classifiers. And then essentially what we're doing is looking at content that is essentially the same, except one piece of content is right supporting versus the other piece of content is left supporting. To give kind of like a, a very generic example, let's say that um, in the lead up to the 2020 election, someone is commenting, oh, you know, I think this is terrible. I think Trump should be in jail. Or someone else is commenting, oh, this is terrible. I think Biden should be in jail. Well, you know, both those comments are relatively politically charged. You could argue whether or not they're toxic versus non-toxic, but the political bias would come in if one one of those comments that is otherwise completely the same, except for one of them is right supporting, the other one is left supporting, if one of those is more consistently removed than the other. That's a good answer. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, how, how y people would be putting together the training sets for those models, right? And feeding it, what does mm -hmm. right supporting mean? It's, yes, me, me, myself and my research team, we are uh, putting together these classifiers and then building those class classifiers as well. And is your research team diverse? Uh, I would say so. I, I would I would say so, yes. Um, definitely, we have a wide variety of different perspectives that are uh, being represented there. And yeah, definitely, when we're putting together our teams, we're looking for uh, a diversity. We're less oftentimes looking at political leaning, but we're looking at diversity of perspectives. We're looking at diversity of skills that are available. We're looking for diversity of um, kind of where individuals are within their careers and making sure that we assemble teams that include kind of uh, more junior faculty, uh, more middle uh, faculty, more senior faculty. And, you know, we, we try to put together those teams as much as possible. On the other hand, too, you know, each project typically has a different team, and those teams tend to be a little bit on the smaller side. So as a result of that, um, some projects will have more diversity, some projects will have less diversity just due to those small, small numbers. Uh, when I say team here, I'm not talking about, say, 20 individuals. I'm talking about you know, myself and maybe a couple others. Mm -hmm. And some of the larger projects maybe goes up to five or seven. Mm -hmm. It pretty much caps out around there. So I want to talk talk about something you, you mentioned earlier about mm -hmm. inherent political bias. And and mm -hmm. was that did you was that one of the 
things that you could sort of extrapolate from that study that even like moderators have political bias that will seep into their decisions and it's sort mm-hmm. of like a universal thing yeah so i would say you know this is coming less out of our particular study and more out of the fact that we see from the broader psychology literature that individuals hold biases and that these biases can act sometimes sometimes consciously but oftentimes subconsciously on a wide range of decisions that we make um, so, you know, we, we took that essentially as a starting point and said, well, you know, given that this bias has been detected in a broad variety of other situations, how does it specifically relate to content removal decisions? And what implications do those content removal decisions have for the variety of content that users ultimately see? And of course, it connects back to broader discussions that are happening um, within the the political science literature, uh, within the information systems literature, around the formation of echo chambers and what that means for uh, the diversity of opinions that individuals perceive and how that can be persuasive to them. So individuals uh, oftentimes are looking to conform. They're looking to descriptive norms. They're looking to what other individuals are doing and utilizing that to infer, well, I want to be somewhat moderate in my political opinion, right? I want to represent kind of a balance between what I'm seeing. And the challenge is that in a lot of online spaces, they become echo chambers. You have individuals, if you're more right-leaning versus more left-leaning, you'll tend to participate in spaces that also reflect those views. And therefore, you can see that political views can drift over time because each group says, oh, well, I feel like I'm average, right? I look at the people that I'm participating in. I'm looking at the people whose tweets I'm following, and I'm representing roughly the average political view amongst them. And you don't see the fact that your feed that you receive, the communities that you participate in, are a small subset of the broader political spectrum. And that can lead to both sides of the political aisle operating with a different set of facts and not being able to see eye to eye. And of course, that's a huge challenge to our democracy. If two sets of individuals, they aren't operating on the same sets of facts, they believe two completely different truths, are seeing two completely different views of the world, and you're asking them, hey, maybe we should get together, put our heads together to solve some of the bigger problems of our time. How do you decide that something is true? Yeah, that, that's a definitely a huge question. We don't look at that specifically in our study. We're not looking at the, the truthiness of statements. That does reflect... First, the fact that uh, classifying something as true versus untrue, especially on a very kind of broad level for the wide range of discussions that could happen on a free form commenting social media site is very hard. Um, but also that um, we're looking we're looking within these communities and looking at other indicators that would uh, tend to elicit content removal, such as, such as toxicity. And of course, within toxicity, you have the presence of like insults, degrading language, uh, sarcasm, right? All of these can be utilized to varying degrees to predict whether or not content ends up being toxic or not. And we see that toxicity maps very closely onto removal. Mm-hmm. I was watching a clip from um, the Possible Summit. It's an advertising summit mm-hmm. in Miami. Elon Musk yeah. was speaking there with his mm-hmm. Twitter C- new Twitter CEO, but at the time just the moderator. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he was talking about the concept of freedom of speech, but not freedom mm-hmm. of reach. And the yeah. idea is to not ban people from mm-hmm. being able to post, but rather not recommend, um, let's say, unsavory content to yeah. the the greater you know mass of users. Yeah. and. I think that's a good middle ground. I'm curious, mm-hmm. how do you see banning versus not boosting in terms of their effect on content? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of my other research looks at um, boosting mechanisms. It looks at rankings. It looks at uh, front pages and featured content and ways that you can essentially make content more visible utilizing the wide range of tools that platforms have available to them. Um, but when I think about kind of de-boosting versus removing the content altogether. To be honest, I don't see a huge difference between the two in the sense that um, because these platform display mechanisms are so powerful, it really doesn't make a huge difference between content getting like one or two views versus content getting, you know, tens of thousands of views, right? And therefore, you know, yeah, we de-boosted this content, maybe it gets one or two views, but we could have just removed it and then had it be zero. 
right? Mm -hmm. Does that difference between kind of a couple views versus zero views, does it really matter? Uh, I, I would say not necessarily, right? I'd say that there's kind of a continuum of actions and deboosting content, especially to the extent that a lot of these platforms engage in it, ends up being functionally really similar to shadow banning or functionally very, very similar to removing the content altogether. Um, and as a result, of course, there's a lot of room for potentially the political bias of the website owners, website operators, which firms they choose to collaborate with in order to, for example, uh, diagnose misinformation or disinformation. Well, that, those biases seep into now the boosting process. And then functionally speaking, then you have individuals on the platform that are being fed either more right-leaning or more left-leaning. Of course, that's a, a huge simplification. The world doesn't only fit within right-leaning versus left-leaning, but um, you know, you, they see a very uniform set of information, set of facts that's coming in through the platform owner's own biases. I agree. I don't think there is much of a difference. I think they're both a form of banning. Um, mm -hmm. I sort of, so I, I want to, can, can you sort of simplify it? Because mm -hmm. it, it is quite a complex argument. If So when mm -hmm. we're talking about banning, um, what what is the value of banning content? Let me just put it that way. Yeah. So, you know, I think this gets, you know, out of the specific domain of my research. You know, my, the domain of my research is looking at kind of the effects of these decisions that are being made, um, as well as the extent to which these uh, kind of levers that are available to platforms are effective. Um, but I think it, it is a very important question uh, in terms of, you know, what types of content should be removed? Where exactly is that line? And I think this is a, a place whereby a lot of reasonable minds will defer. Um, I think that a lot of people would say, well, you know, there could be abusive content, right? You think of uh, child abuse, you think of uh, maybe violent content, you think of oftentimes people would say explicitly hateful content should be removed. Um, but the problem is, well, where does that hate go from, you know, hate into a gray area? Where is it hate versus legitimate expressions of political opinion? Uh, what at what point does kind of, you know, these uh, maybe normative discussions around, you know, and, and nowadays the political ecosystem is so fractured, but people are saying Biden should be in jail, Trump should be in jail, Hillary Clinton should be in jail. Well, to, at what at what point does that veer into hate and do we expect that users should support these opinions in order for them to be legitimate political opinions? And to what extent are they um, potentially have the potential to spread misinformation if individuals maybe quote some facts in support of their, their arguments, but those facts are, are wrong, either to, to a slight degree or a major degree? And that's where a lot of you know, moderation is difficult. The argument that I, I make through my research isn't that we shouldn't have no moderation, but rather that moderation is a really hard challenge and that moderating the internet and making sure that the internet works for you and me, works for all of the users on the platform, that's really, really difficult. And therefore we should understand the implications of our actions, understand the potential blind spots that we should have as people who uh, might operate these platforms, as people that might engage with these platforms, as you know, potentially content moderators, if we create our own content and then moderate the comments that are being made on that content. I want to point out the blind spots. I want people to understand the implications of their decisions, but it's not to say that people should engage in one behavior or another. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you are sort of take treating moderation like it, it is a double-edged sword and we have to yes, be careful definitely. with how, how we use it. And definitely. So you you must be a fan of community notes because I think the the interesting thing about that is that they have a mm -hmm. balanced team that mm -hmm. that does research for everything and that yeah. is sort of like a, a form of diversity. Yeah, yeah. I, I think community notes. I think it's been uh, a great initiative. Of course, you know all the same caveats around kind of uh, having diverse perspectives on that team, making sure that they're utilizing high quality sources. All that is still relevant, but um, I think those community notes can be very helpful. And I think uh, you know this, this is kind of my own personal opinion. Don't consider this to be backed by any sort of research. But my own personal opinion, my own personal feel is that it ends up being a better alternative than deboosting this content altogether, right? 
because by calling out what exactly is false about the information that's being spread, then people who are following this individual, then they can see, oh, this individual that I follow, they were clearly wrong about this particular point that was being made. And therefore, maybe if I see them making subsequent points, maybe I should approach those points with a little bit more skepticism, a little bit more critical thinking. And I think that kind of encouraging people to get out of their echo chambers, encourage them to engage a little bit more critically with the information that they receive online. I think that's enormously beneficial, much more beneficial than kind of hiding away that content that uh, might be incorrect. And then individuals don't engage in those same critical uh, critical and kind of uh, retrospective, those uh, deep examining processes. Has your research extended at all into when moderation is flawed for instance like when the Mm -hmm. leader of the company or leaders of the company have a sort of leaning and that effect on the moderation um so we we don't have information on that specifically um you know my observation as someone who's been studying social media is that it probably does happen um, the Twitter files were a very, very interesting uh, look into kind of the previous content moderation system that existed before Elon Musk. And you could definitely see that there were areas whereby political bias was seeping in due to differential collaboration with um, individuals that were more right-leaning versus more, more left-leaning. So my, my take, my uh, personal kind of personal take, which is, of course, informed by, by what I've seen would be it probably happens. But doing specific research on it is very difficult. Um, And that is why we decided to study Reddit in our particular context, because we wanted sample size, right? We want to generate um, broad kind of generalizable insights about these kinds of behavior. And in order for it to be generalizable, we need to take it out of, well, this one person made this one decision at this one time, and therefore it led to, and of course, you know, we have to make some argument about it, even leading to this particular outcome that we observed. Right. And we need to argue that, you know, the counterfactual outcome, had they not taken that decision, would have been different. All of that is very difficult when we have just a couple of events. Right. It's a lot easier to do it when we have a large, maybe large number of communities, large number of different moderation philosophies. And then we see differential outcomes between those over a large number of decisions. And that's why we leaned into Reddit. Cool thing about Reddit is that you have independently governed communities. Uh, the moderators on r slash Chicago are different from the moderators on r slash New York, different from those on r slash Los Angeles. And therefore, we can get a large sample size of different decision makers that are have different political leanings and are making these decisions across hundreds of thousands of comments on a, a regular basis. Um, so that, that's why we leaned into that particular data set to study this question, as opposed to trying to understand specifically what content was removed on Twitter. Um, the other challenge is that when Twitter removes content, it oftentimes is less transparent about that process. It's hard, harder to see specifically what content was removed and be able to see kind of, you know, what, what did it look like before that removal? Whereas on Reddit, due to the historical systems that have been put in place and a lot of kind of independent tech-minded creators that have built tools on top of Reddit, we have the ability to uh, examine these kind of um, the, the removed content and therefore characterize the of course, the characteristics of that removed content too. Would you say there is a positive relationship between the how mm-hmm. close to the fire a mm-hmm. comment is and its mm-hmm. likelihood to be subject to moderation? Would you say things on the edge are yeah. a little bit more likely? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Close- definitely. And of course, a big part of. Uh, answering this question well of kind of when does it become politically biased is to, as best we can, make an apples to apples comparison of kind of how on the line, right? How borderline is is this content? And how can we kind of make that comparison to similar content that's on the borderline, but would have supported the other political spectrum? And um, we're doing that as, as much as possible. We have a wide variety of controls that are are trying to capture that. But can I say that it's being, being done absolutely perfectly? No. Right. I, I think with all these machine learning systems, it's hard to get it exactly perfect 100 percent of the time. And of course, kind of relating that to another hot machine learning topic, you know, that's why self-driving has proven such a difficult challenge for Tesla, proven such a difficult challenge for Elon Musk, who has you know, been promising us for years that uh, that it would be here. Right. When you have machine learning and then it needs to be utilized in safety related applications, well, suddenly 99 percent accuracy is no longer good enough. Right. 
99.9% mm-hmm. um, accuracy is no longer no longer good enough. And therefore, you know, it's, it's a hard, hard push to get it exactly, exactly right. And of course, it's you're, you're functionally never going to be able to get there. Um, yeah. Quite huge. I want to talk about the implications, the -hmm. implications to marketers, Mm -hmm. because I think what I'm getting here is if you're a brand and you have Mm -hmm. uh, social accounts, organic Mm -hmm. uh, or whatever kind of content you're posting, what what I'm understanding is you would want to stay away from any charged topics Mm -hmm. because... Um, depending on where the content is seen, people from one side yeah. or another are going to try to attack yeah. it. And then that's a risk for the brand. So mm-hmm. I feel like brands generally would try to stay in the middle. And that's probably yeah. why they don't get as much uh, attention. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like there's very few brands. There's like Wendy's that yep. like that has a great Twitter account. Like there's few, mm-hmm. but... Would you say that generally brands are sort of stuck in this very moderate place where they can't mm-hmm. say anything too far to one side or another? Uh, you know, I think it's uh, definitely a huge challenge for brands. And it's a question that kind of uh, exists within marketing, but with even kind of has a lot of broader implications, even outside of kind of specifically marketing or kind of the management of the social media accounts. Right. So it's kind of what are your brand's values and how do we want to represent them to the consumer? And we don't want our social media accounts kind of engaging in a different narrative than we are putting out in our advertisements. We are uh, engaging with through our various other corporate social responsibility, CSR type type of activities uh, and engaging in through maybe our product design and how we're sourcing kind of the specific materials that go into our products. So. As a result, I think a lot of brands are leaning away from it, but there is the potential for them to do so, to potentially wade into more political waters and therefore represent themselves. And we see as a major battleground around this, uh, you know, uh, making no value judgment either way, but a lot of uh, questions around kind of racial diversity, around uh, uh, gender diversity, a lot of those are huge, huge hot button topics that are you know, the the battlefront of American culture right now. And you see brands to varying degrees looking to dip their toes into it, some to some success, others to uh, less success. And that is not a decision that brands should make lightly, right? That really is coming down to the identity of the brand. Um, On the other hand, you know, while I say that it's not a decision that brands should make lightly, I also don't think that it's one that brands should avoid. Right. Brands uh, need ways to stand out. Uh, Consumers are increasingly looking to brands to represent their values. So oftentimes saying nothing even can lead both sides to be unhappy as well. Um, So, you know, that is a difficult question to have. It has implications for kind of what are the values that brand wants to represent. There's another kind of, of course, financial incentive. Maybe we should be thinking a lot about the values of our consumers. And should we mirror those values, even if those values are contrary to the ones that, you know, we as the owners, the operators, the managers of these brands uh, look to represent too. So it's a, a very, very challenging question that uh, a lot of them are facing. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes the brands get it wrong when they're mm-hmm. trying to appeal to consumers I've seen yeah. several examples. I mean, any time mm-hmm. a company makes yeah. a serious statement, you know, mm-hmm. values statement, something that's a hot button topic, they lose customers yeah. for yeah. sure. And there may be some that are more loyal yeah. um, and maybe it balances out, but it's it's a minefield. Yeah, it, it, it totally is a minefield. Um, you know, I think another challenge about wading into this minefield is that once you start to engage with it, then consumers will also scrutinize the other actions that you'd historically taken, right? So brands strive to be authentic. I think definitely authenticity is one of those kind of things that consumers are expecting more and more from their brands. They're expecting them to kind of represent the value, these values through all the actions that they take. And the problem is, you know, once we maybe engage in these 
social media campaigns. We make some tweets that are supportive of uh, one cause versus another cause. Well, people will dig into past historical actions and then say, well, okay, right now you're saying that you supported this, but you didn't support it a year ago when you did X, Y, and Z. Or you don't support it through your supply chain. Let's, you know, let's say that you are standing up for um, labor rights right now. Well, they'll say, oh, you had this, this strike that happened um, you know, a, a year ago, a couple of years ago, and you took these very harsh actions in order to break that strike. And that can very much backfire on the brand. Um, so really, it, 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 like you mentioned, yeah, minefield is the best way to describe uh, describe this. And unfortunately, not engaging with it itself is also a minefield too. So uh, no easy answers there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes uh, the lack of action is just as bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's says it's the lack of action says something as well. And yeah, increasingly consumers you know, will love brands, right? They'll, they'll, they will kind of form an emotional attachment to the brand because of the values that they believe that that brand represents. So if you aren't utilizing the fact that your brand can represent kind of broader values about and a broader vision of our society, that could potentially be le- leaving customer loyalty on the table. And of course, that translates into leaving money on the table, of course. Definitely, definitely. So would you recommend if a brand wanted to navigate this social media world that they Mm -hmm. do their research into the values that the greatest number of their customers share? And Mm -hmm. it's it's, it feels like what a politician would do. Yes. Is that sort of the direction? So I think it's a a really interesting question. And I think it really depends on a, a variety of factors. Um, first, kind of the extent to which your brand might be publicly versus privately held, your own kind of values as the owners, as managers of that brand. But also it's a, a tension between kind of the short term versus the long term. Your current customer base might have values right now, but through the messages that you deliver, you could potentially change those values. You could acquire new customer bases uh, uh, similarly. Um, the values of your your consumers might be shifting over time. So uh, you know, while it definitely is a good advice always to listen to the customer, right? I tell my students to do that on a, on a regular basis. Um, you know, it's also important to recognize that kind of what the current customer is, isn't what the customer will be like in the future and that there's always room for more acquisition, more retention, and that uh, those, the, that information should change. So I'd say as a, a general broad rule of thumb, should you be you know, expressing values that are completely contrary to your audience, eh, probably isn't a great business this decision, but there's room for a lot of play within that space and a lot of creativity potentially for uh, brand managers. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's uh, makes a lot of sense to, mm-hmm. especially when you map out the threats that surround mm-hmm. it, you know, not, not just now, but in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I, I want to switch gears um, mm-hmm. and ask you about your research in pandemic-related stigma. And this is similar mm-hmm. to what we were talking about in terms of, um, I guess, like the content that is being shared mm-hmm. and how that affects people's behavior. Um, do you want to give us an overview of yeah. that research? Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll give kind of a high level overview and then I'll connect it to maybe some of the topics that we've been talking about before. Um, so at a very high level in, uh, overview, we had seen that there was an outpouring of kind of violence and aggression that was directed towards Asian Americans after the pandemic. Um, so you might have heard about the hashtag stop Asian hate or stop AAPI hate. We'd seen from FBI data Uh, as well as uh, a number of hate crime trackers, that there was a dramatic spike in violent attacks and aggression towards Asian Americans during that pandemic period. So what uh, I as a research wanted to do, and specifically as a marketing researcher, wanted to look at, well, we see that a lot of this hate is happening on kind of the very extreme kind of violent end of the the spectrum. But does this kind of hatred, does this stigma, uh, does this racism extend to more kind of subtle behaviors? more subtle behaviors that might be conscious, but might even be unconscious as well, whereby individuals, because Asians, Asian Americans were being stigmatized during that period, did they uh, tend to avoid products that were associated with Asia? 
And uh, a great laboratory for studying this was food. Food had historically been an outlet for a lot of racial, racial stereotypes. You might have heard racial stereotypes around Asians eating cats and dogs. There's also a lot of history around um, the fact that Asian restaurants are associated with high usage of MSG. And therefore, uh, there was this uh, term, Chinese restaurant syndrome, that went around, whereby they said, oh, Asian restaurants, they use so much MSG, and therefore, I'm going to get headaches when I consume the food. This was, of course, ignoring the fact that MSG in in occurs in massive quantities in a whole bunch of fermented and uh, processed products that includes um, like simple stuff like potato chips. If you eat Cheetos, if you eat Doritos, for example, huge amounts of MSG in that, naturally occurring in meats, naturally occurring in tomato sauces, naturally occurring in seaweed and Parmesan cheese, so on and so forth. Um, just to give one more example, too, of kind of um, food-related uh, stereotypes and kind of stigmas and how they've been historically an outlet for sentiment towards ethnic groups, you might have remembered uh, Freedom Fries. This was post 9-11 uh, with the fact that uh, France did not agree with the U.S.'s decision to invade Iraq. And uh, because of France's refusal, well, there was a lot of anti-French sentiment. And therefore, we saw uh, a lot of restaurants, instead of having them named French fries, they wanted to take the French out of French fries. So oftentimes they were called freedom fries during that period. You'd see signs where the French is crossed out and it says freedom and they put like an American flag next to it. Um, there are also instances whereby individuals were pouring out smashing bottles of French wine too. Again, to express the fact that, oh, well, you know, France should be standing with us during this time and they're not. Um, so definitely see food as this historical outlet. We thought, okay, well, that's a great business to go and study. Um, the other really interesting thing is that, you know, while we've had similar kind of large um, geopolitical eco economic events that have created shifts in sentiment towards individuals from particular geographic regions, to give a couple examples, you have uh, in the 1980s, there was the U.S. and Japanese economic competition, a lot of particularly around Detroit, a lot of auto workers were upset by the fact that Japanese vehicles were, at least in their, their perspective, undercutting kind of U.S. prices and therefore decreasing their quality of living. Um, we also saw a lot of anti-Muslim, a lot of anti-Arab sentiment that was coming in post 9-11. But the really interesting thing about right now is that we have large-scale consumer mobility data and we saw that large-scale consumer mobility data being utilized in the early days of the pandemic to track, for example, uh, compliance with stay-at-home orders or social distancing compliance. And that's, just, that's coming in through mobile devices, your, your cell phones. Uh, a lot of uh, app manufacturers had utilized software development kits, and those software development kits included kind of features for regular heartbeats. Apps saying, hey, I'm still here, the user is still here, and oftentimes if location ser services were enabled, that also came with location-based information. Well, this information got packaged, got resold to uh, marketing agencies, uh, kind of like uh, mobility, kind of mobility analysis kind of agencies, and one of those was SafeGraph. And SafeGraph had a uh, data sharing uh, program whereby they said, hey, you know, we want to advertise our products. We want to make it available to academic research. We think that this is a great way to get additional exposure. So as a result, me and my research team, we got access to this uh, consumer mobility data. It's able to track for uh, millions of locations throughout the United States on an anonymized aggregated level how much traffic those locations were getting every single day. Um, and of course, that led into our study of restaurants. We were able to compare, again, one to make an apples to apples comparison uh, of restaurants that were in the same location, served similar types of food, and yet one of them was an Asian restaurant, one was a non-Asian restaurant. And in short, you know, I recognize that this is becoming a pretty long summary, but in short, bringing it back, we found that there was an 18.4% additional drop in traffic if restaurants were uh, Asian restaurants versus non-Asian restaurants in the pandemic period. And of course, this is on top of the fact that all of these uh, restaurants suffered a drop in traffic as a result of the pandemic itself. Um, translating that into economic terms, we did some back of the envelope calculations. We estimated that this represented roughly $7.4 billion in lost revenue for Asian restaurants. Um, and of course, you know, these are Asian restaurants, they're owned by Asian Americans. They're owned by Asian Americans that are living here in the States. You know, and we saw that, you know, it wasn't only just like Chinese American restaurants, but Japanese American restaurants, Korean American restaurants, Indian American restaurants, all of them were being stereotyped under this broad umbrella of being Asian and therefore were being avoided during these periods. Um, so it connects to a lot of 
issues within kind of uh, Asian American studies, such as the notion of being a perpetual foreigner, that even if Asian Americans are born in the United States, even if they are, are citizens, they're oftentimes perceived to be more foreign um, than uh, comparable individuals of, uh, of other ethnic descent. And of course, kind of connecting this into our previous discussions, well, this is one whereby brands are looking to express an identity, right? Restaurants are looking to brand themselves, looking to express an identity. And you think about restaurants, well, they are a type of small business. Their resources are limited. So how do we convey our product offerings? How do we convey our values to the customer? Well, they'll oftentimes just kind of engage in kind of gen relatively generic ethnic branding as a result, right? How do we express the fact that we are serving kind of fried rices, fried noodles, uh, General Tso's chicken? Well, we'll brand ourselves as a Chinese restaurant. We will come up with a generic name like, you know, it's the Panda Garden or something along those lines. And uh, of course, you know, that's a form of branding. Consumers are going to respond to that branding. And of course, consumers are increasingly making consumption decisions based on kind of, do we think that these brands represent the values that, uh, of course, I want to represent? And usually this encourage encourages brands to act more ethically. But we also need to recognize that consumers are subject to biases, subject to stigmatization, can uh, engage in either conscious or subconscious uh, racism. And therefore, this uh, you know, anti-foreign sentiment can reflect on domestic business owners in a lot of negative ways. And this is uh, one of those examples. Just to give another example, too, this was, wasn't something that we'd studied during our research, but had happened after we'd done the research. There was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And what happened after Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, a lot of people were throwing out, were smashing vodka bottles, were uh, even vandalizing some Russian branded businesses. And yet the challenge was that a lot of these vodka brands are, they have no affiliation with Russia. They're made in the United States by American uh, spirits manufacturers. And yet due to the fact that their product has affiliations with being Russian, well, people are smashing their products, uh, potentially attacking their stores. There were a number of even Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian American owned restaurants. And yet, you know, due to the proximity and the fact that Russia is much better known than Ukraine was, especially pre-invasion, they had branded their food as being Russian food. And yet these restaurants were also being attacked despite being Ukrainian American for the fact that they had marketed themselves as being Russian. Um, so really interesting kind of interplay between branding behaviors, between um, kind of consumer stigmatization and discrimination and consumers looking to express their values through consumption activities. And uh, that was kind of some of the upshot of the study. That's why I, as a marketer, found it really fascinating. And of course, as an Asian American, it allowed me to tell a lot of kind of Asian American stories too, and kind of relate it to, back to a lot of the challenges that the Asian American community was facing from rising hate uh, during that period, and unfortunately continuing through to this day. So what data did you use for that study? How did you measure the impact to the businesses? Yeah. Definitely. So that was coming in through the consumer traffic data. So we had uh, data on 600,000 restaurants throughout the United States. It captures actually a pretty significant uh, fraction of, of restaurants there. And the great thing about this traffic data is that, you know, it's been historically very challenging to study small businesses. Uh, small businesses, the reporting is oftentimes... Um, you know, uh, not, not the highest quality data that's available to them. There had been some small scale studies, some small scale, scale survey uh, studies of businesses uh, in some occasions. But of course, those small scale survey studies, they're subject to selection biases. They're also oftentimes geographically concentrated. So there was a study uh, coming out of UCLA that looked at specifically restaurants and businesses in Southern California. But instead, for us, through this large-scale mobility data, well, now we get a great picture of the typical traffic of these businesses. And, of course, for the, the business owners, then traffic uh, traffic represents, well, customers coming in the door. It's a pretty good, good proxy for whether or not the business is doing well versus doing poorly. So we were able to look, at, look into that traffic data. We wanted to make comparisons between Asian, uh, Asian restaurants and non-Asian restaurants within the same area, controlling for a wide range of other characteristics, both at the restaurant level, as well as at the uh, demographic and kind of the regional level within that area, looking at kind of political preferences in that area, looking at um, uh, a bunch of information that was coming in through the US census data too. 
So that, that's the rough framework that we uh, did within our analysis. Again, trying to make an apples to apples comparison of kind of pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, how much uh, larger was the relative drop in traffic for Asian versus non-Asian restaurants that are otherwise comparable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did you decide comparable restaurants? Yeah, so they, they are comparable if they're uh, the same across observable characteristics. So we have uh, their one of the strongest c- controls that we have is just their pre-pandemic traffic, right? So if they're they're uh, at the same level of pre-pandemic traffic, well, they're of roughly the same scale, right? Your your mom and pop store that's kind of like got a small location on a little corner is very different from like a McDonald's location. So we wouldn't want to make comparisons between between those two. But uh, additionally, on top of that, we have um, coming in from the data set, we had their classification of food service type. So were they counter service, were they sit down, were they buffet, uh, did they offer alcohol, as well as we had their uh, ethnic affiliation and the types of food that they served. So all of that was coming in uh, into our regression analysis. And then we utilized that aggression, regression analysis to estimate coefficients on each of those characteristics and then look at then for restaurants of similar performance, predicted performance across uh, this uh, wide range of controls that we have, then let's make the comparison specifically between Asian versus non-Asian restaurants. Mm-hmm. Just curious, do you, why is there anti-Asian sentiment? Mm-hmm. What's the source? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, one of the things that we looked at and you know, this was very unfortunate, was the fact that our political leaders, President Donald Trump at the time, former President Donald Trump at the time, um, did not engage in uh, the efforts that I would say was his responsibility to destigmatize the pandemic. And especially as the stigma was affecting Asian Americans and the Asian American community. Um, So there was the fact that uh, Donald Trump had consistently called the virus the China virus. And that in and of itself doesn't sound, you know, the worst, but when you think about the fact that the World Health Organization had run a number of studies around the fact that when you associate diseases with uh, geographic locations with peoples, then those geographic locations and those peoples tend to be stigmatized. And that was what led into their recommendation to destigmatize disease naming in 2015. So of course, five years before the start of the pandemic. And the fact that Donald Trump took the next step he would oftentimes call the virus Kung Flu. And when you tie aspects of Asian and Asian American culture for the fact, from the fact that Kung Fu movies were a huge part of Asian American cinema, you think about, for example, Bruce Lee, right? You take this kind of long history that Bruce Lee had had and you know, a point of pride, a point of identification for a lot of Asian Americans, and then suddenly you tie it into a terrible, terrible disease that is ravaging the country, well, that creates a lot of stigma, and that goes uh, goes into creating specific racism towards individuals of that descent and saying, oh, well, this person, because of the color of the skin, because of their appearance, they must be then carriers of disease. And it led to, unfortunately, a lot of terrible, terrible attacks. Um, I'll give one example. There was Bawi Kung. Bawi Kung and his two sons were uh, there in a Sam's Club in uh, Midland, Texas. And this was in the early uh, days of the pandemic, I want to say either March or April of 2020. So within the first first month or so of the pandemic. And he and his sons were shopping at Sam's Club and they got attacked by a knife wielding assailant. And the knife wielding assailant said, well, you know, you guys uh, look Chinese. You must be bringing the virus into the country. And he slashed Bowie Kung and his sons. Thankfully, he and the son and his sons both survived the attack. But it was an example of kind of you know, the fact that disease was becoming stigmatized, was being connected to individuals of particular descent, and therefore those individuals were being attacked for it. And of course, another aspect of this is that individuals that know the least about these ethnic groups are also most likely to engage in misidentification too. So they said, oh, Bowie Kung, you know, and of course, not, to, not that this would make it any more justifiable, but they said, oh, Bowie Kung, you know, you look Chinese, therefore you're bringing the virus into the country. Bowie Kung and his sons were not Chinese. They were coming in from Myanmar. They were coming in from uh, formerly Burma. 
and they they were of course you know uh, or well not even coming in from but their their ethnic descent was was from there of course they they were Americans and yet they were attacked for the same reason and we see unfortunately this trend of misidentification and stigmatization playing out through a wide variety of ge geopolitical events I highlight in the research there was the uh, case of Balbir Singh Sodhi Balbir Singh Sodhi was a Indian American Sikh. And as an Indian American Sikh, he wears, you know, as part of his religion, he wore a turban. Well, post 9-11, he was murdered because his assailant said, well, I have anti-Arab, anti-Muslim sentiment, and I see this individual, he's of darker complexion. I think that he might be from the, the Middle East. Um, he's wearing a turban. I associate turbans with being Muslim. And therefore he was, shot and killed, killed in cold blood. It was absolutely tragic. But again, there's this, this correlation between those individuals that harbor the most stigma, uh, har harbor the most kind of uh, hatred towards these groups. They don't have the exposure. They don't differentiate between these individuals. And as a result, you see a lot of these broadly targeted uh, attacks that harm, uh, you know, it's not just hatred directed towards people in the Middle East, people direct uh, from Asia, but Asian Americans too. And of course, that ties in very closely with the perpetual foreigner uh, stereotype, the fact that Asian Americans are perceived to be more foreign. Um, so essentially, that, that was playing out both at the violent level, but we, through our research, were also able to show that this is playing out at the consumer discrimination level, too. It happens for both aggressive behaviors and more subtle kind of like moment to moment consumer decision, uh, consumer decision making. Wow. I'm wondering how this can be used strategically to benefit yeah. businesses in the future. Do you have any yeah, insights definitely. that businesses can take away from that study? Yeah. So, you know, I think it is important for businesses to, you know, engage in diverse branding. Um, and especially for Asian American businesses, historically, and this is coming into a lot of Asian American history, but historically, a lot of Asian American restaurants were not opened out of, for example, like the, the chef owner's particular passion for uh, culinary cooking, right? It wasn't that these individuals were previously chefs and they're like, oh, I'm a great chef, I'm going to open a restaurant. But rather, it's coming in from the long history of employment discrimination, coming in from the Chinese Exclusion Act that prevented a lot of Asian Americans, oftentimes Chinese Americans too, from engaging in other forms of small business commerce. And as a result, individuals with no particular passion for food opened up restaurants. Well, what do those, those individuals do? Well, they don't have a particular passion for food. They don't have a lot of skills in restauranting. So they'll lean very heavily into just making the ethnic uh, identity of their food their brand. Right. So this is where you get a lot of Asian restaurants that are called like Panda Garden or like, you know, China Garden or something, something along those lines. Right. Tokyo Garden, uh, Seoul Garden, something, something like that. Um, and I think what's important and what we're seeing over time is that the next generation of Asian Americans, well, first, they have more employment opportunities, uh, racism and discrimination while still present in society today. And of course, discrimination against Asian Americans has gotten worse. There have been a number of studies that looked at this post-pandemic. It's gotten uh, worse there. But the broader trend is still positive in the United States. And, I, and that, that's a great thing. And that means that this younger generation of Asian Americans first have more other economic uh, opportunity and can engage in forms of business, small business ownership that are not just restaurants. But it also means that those that remain in the restauranting business are more likely to be those that have a real passion for food and a real passion for innovating on this cuisine. And what does this mean? This means that they have the ability to define their brand as more than just being a Chinese restaurant or a Korean restaurant or a Japanese restaurant, right? They have more ability to tell a more unique story through the design of their restaurant, through the food itself. And from there, illustrate the fact that Asian Americans are unique and diverse. Try and fight back on this kind of uh, stigma that Asian Americans are all the same, that there is kind of this outgroup, the, the phenomenon is called outgroup homophily. The, the idea and uh, uh, sorry, at group homogeneity, the notion that kind of, you know, if I have less exposure to this group, I'm going to assume that everyone in this group is roughly the same. Well, a great way to fight back against that is through education, through illustrating that there is diversity, a lot of diversity within these groups. And that, that story is slowly being told, 
right? It's not something that's going to change uh, overnight, but rather just slowly and steadily, we see that people are uh, understanding the diversity of Asian Americans. They're understanding Asian American stories and that understanding can lead to more pushback, can uh, decrease the stigma, decrease the ignorance that has historically at least surrounded uh, Asian Americans. So little by little, small changes are being made. And of course, you know, branding and kind of the, the broader system that we have, branding and through firms, through our interactions through firms is a source of education in the country. And that is happening. So business owners through their branding telling more stories, decreasing ignorance, hopefully fights back against some of these challenges that we've seen. So I'm I'm understanding that there is a risk to mm-hmm. blending it with your brand with other businesses mm-hmm. that are similar. Yes, and definitely. I think previously there was an advantage to it and yes. consumers mm-hmm. responded well to that. But in today's mm-hmm. world with today's consumers, they mm-hmm. can throw away uh, the baby mm-hmm. with the bathwater, right? Is that, yep. is that if that's the term? So, yes, definitely. I, I love that analogy. Yes. Yeah, they, they throw them all away. And, and that was previously the strength and now it becomes the weakness. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Wow. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, it's it's a strength. It's also a matter of just kind of efficiency of convenience as well. For a lot of small business owners, they don't have a lot. They have limited time, limited attention, limited resources, limited human capital too, right? You have a lot of people that are going into these businesses that don't have a lot of business background, never went to business school, never took a marketing class. And yeah, that's why they tended to lean into kind of this uh, style of branding. You could say it's even a form of umbrella branding. And, um, you know, in the same way that I I tell, tell my students, you know, tell your brand story through your marketing. I would give that same advice to a lot of these small restaurant owners. Tell your story through through your marketing, right? Through uh, not just the design of kind of the exterior of the store, the interior of the store, design of your menu, but also through your product offerings, through your other forms of communication to the customer. And yeah, it is broadly a good thing for a lot of businesses. More differentiated businesses are able to charge higher prices due to the fact that consumers perceive their goods to be less substitutable. And like you mentioned, you know, it prevents this challenge of throwing the baby out of the bathwater. You have told your own unique story and you're seen not just as another generic Chinese restaurant, another generic Japanese restaurant, another generic Korean restaurant. And would you say this also applies to personal branding as well that the same Mm -hmm. threat can be seen with blending Mm -hmm. into a larger group and it's more important to showcase your individuality yeah oh definitely definitely is the the case um and you know as someone who studies uh, social media thinks a lot about these social media platforms one thing that a lot of individuals can learn from the influencers that they follow is influencers, successful influencers are very good at expressing their personal brand, very good at creating a personality for themselves because having a more unique personality makes you less substitutable with other influencers that are also within that space. And it builds customer loyalty, right? It it builds an audience for for the influencers. Maybe they'll consider that an audience or audience loyalty. But for a lot of other businesses, that means customer loyalty. And for a lot of uh, people, a lot of, you know, people who aren't even working in marketing, but individuals that are trying to to uh, make a, a, a place for themselves and create identi- an identity for themselves in the personal and the, the business world. It's very important to engage in this personal branding. Crucial, crucial, in fact, to engage in this personal branding because, again, you're seen as less substitutable. You build more loyalty amongst potential uh, employers, potential coworkers that want to work with you. So, yeah, I, I love that connection. Wow. I've learned a lot, and I I hope the listeners also really enjoyed it. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think this is a good uh, stopping point. I I know that we could Mm -hmm. dive into some more topics, um, but I I think that we should do a um, Mm follow-up soon. Sounds excellent. Sounds excellent. (laughs) Thank you, Justin. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and for sharing all of your research. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been uh, wonderful and um, you know, hope to, to uh, see you again soon. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Great job.
Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I think it, it flowed really well. Um, I think we had a good kind of variety of topics. I, I tried to hit the right balance too of kind of diving in and telling a little bit more of this kind of Asian American story because of course I, I like to do that. That's part of my own personal personal branding. Yeah. Um, but I hope I did a good enough job at kind of making it very approachable for a broader audience and connecting it to these broader business topics too. Yeah, you did. You did. And, and uh, that's sort of where I, f I felt like I came in was like trying it's, to think yeah, about great. connecting with like, what what can we take away from this? And um, yeah. so I, I agree. I really enjoyed it. Um, I I would love to have you on again. Um, of course. Yeah. So yeah. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and you you were an excellent, absolutely excellent host. Thank uh, you. I definitely see your, your experience shining through. Thank you. That really means a lot. All right, Justin, have an awesome right. weekend. It was a pleasure. I'll look forward to the episode. Um, just shoot me a ping once it uh, comes on out. And of course, I'll tweet it. I'll uh, put it onto my socials, my Twitter, my LinkedIn, all sorts of stuff like that. Oh, I really appreciate um, that. Yep. It'll yeah. be uh, it'll be a few weeks, probably like yeah, four no to worries. No four worries. I, I know you've, you've got your uh, content production schedule. Love that you're able to, to do this on the side. It's yeah. Well, it's it's all thanks to people like you who, who want to join and share their ideas. So thank you. Excellent. All right. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye, Justin. You. Bye. So I